Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable edition of The Hub Dialogues. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. Rudyard Griffiths here, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined in person for a change by Sean Spear, our editor at large. Sean, so great to be doing this across the proverbial dining room table. Hey, wait a second. It actually is a dining room table. It's my dining room table. You're in Toronto for the Monk debate on um, classical kind of liberalism that I'm moderating tonight. We've got you up here because you're going to get an exclusive interview with George F. Will for Hub readers. Maybe just explain why this is a kind of Christmas. (laughs) Christmas has come early for you in 2023. Yes. uh, When I was a kid, uh, I would have been excited to interview Wayne Gretzky or Mario Lemieux or something like that. But in my 40s, it's it's George Will that gets me on an airplane at six in the morning uh, and here to Toronto. Uh, Will is often seen as the, the dean of uh, conservative columnists in Washington, and I would say really across the Anglo-American world. Um, his thinking and writing has mattered a great deal to me uh, over the years, and so I owe you a big thanks uh, uh, for the opportunity to be able to interview him later this afternoon. And for Hub Dialogues listeners, you can, you can stay tuned for that uh, forthcoming episode with George F. Will. Excellent, Sean. I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Uh, You'll, again, bring that to listeners in podcast form. We'll also do some write-ups on George's insights into U.S. politics, what the heck's going on in Congress. We've got all that for you, our valued hub community, next week. But let's start this week, Sean, by talking carbon taxes. Um, We all know the story. The Liberals have created a carve-out in Atlantic Canada for home heating fuel, arguably one of the dirtiest uh, energy sources. The reverberations of this now across the country, and you have a sense, Sean, of, I don't know, just a policy blunder here that is snowballing. Is that your assessment? Yeah. I mean, if you step back for a second, of course, um, the underlying rationale for the change is sort of self-evident. Um, the carbon tax on home heating oil in Atlantic Canada uh, was a major factor behind the party's precipitous drop in, in polling. Um, we have reason to believe that Atlantic Canadian Liberal MPs have been agitating for some kind of dispensation for the past several months. Uh, late last week, uh, on the eve of a Pierre Polyev rally in Nova Scotia, the government rolled out what on the face of it, looks to have been um, something of a rushed policy announcement. In fact, members of the media were saying, I think at least for a couple of days afterwards, the basic information like press releases and backgrounders and so on were not available. So the rationale here was pretty straightforward, crude politics. Um, but one wonders if the government was so focused on that narrow, short-term political calculus that they overlooked the uh, broader implications Uh not only has it led to growing demands for similar treatment of, of energy 
uh, different forms of energy across the country. Um, I've been struck, Rudyard, by the elite backlash. The carbon tax has always been um, a elite project. It, you know, it's one of those policies that um, that academics and other policy adjacent uh, uh, scholars have been drawn to because of its relative efficiency and its um, and and its um, design features and so on, and um, and so notwithstanding the government's uh, flaws at various points, it's something that has kept kind of elite support uh, drawn to the party. And we saw that really uh, uh, recoil in the past week or so. Um, you know, one small example, Trevor Toome, a regular contributor at The Hub, uh, who I would describe as a dispassionate empiricist, <laughs> had a pretty uh, full-throated critique of the government. And in fact, he said that, that this policy will, for all intents and purposes, kill the carbon tax. Um, so I'll, I'll turn it to you because we've talked in the past, Rudyard, about um, the extent to which the liberal, one thing that distinguishes the Liberal Party from the Conservatives and to an extent New Democrats is its responsiveness to elite opinion. that um, just matters more for various reasons, including kind of sociocultural ones. Um, so, yeah, what do you think about the, the backlash from the commentariat? Uh, and what do you think that does for, uh, for kind of internal liberal politics? Uh, yeah, Catherine McKenna was pretty brutal on uh, Twitter and then subsequently interviewed in the Globe and Mail. Mark Carney this week coming out, taking a, a kind of cat's paw type swipe at this policy change. And look, I think it does matter. And just to talk about the policy a little bit more, what what's important about carbon taxes is that they are trying to uh, incentivize uh, a change in behavior by incrementally nudging people towards different choices, choices that are less uh, greenhouse gas emitting than others. And, you know, we're not going to debate climate change today, but if you believe like I do that, you know, more greenhouse gas emissions probably are not good and will be expensive for Canada in a whole variety of different ways, then having some mitigation strategy that gets at the big emitting parts of our economy, which are largely are around the consumer and what the consumer does and the choices that the consumer makes, this week was a big setback. And it's not simply because, you know, now there's a carve-out in Atlantic Canada and the other premiers are each demanding their own carve-out, Sean. I think the big problem here is it creates, for me at least, doubt about whether this policy will even exist in two to three or five years. So my behavior now, and I was, you know, I was actually thinking in the last few months, you know, should I get a heat pump uh, for my house? Because my furnace is old, it could be time to replace it. They're expensive. I'm not going to get the $20,000 low income free heat pump that the liberals are planning to give out in Atlantic Canada. But I was thinking to myself, well, maybe I should do this because it'll I'll save on home heating costs over time. The carbon tax rebate to me could help subsidize that purchase. I don't know now, Sean. Does that make any sense? Is this policy going to exist? They, they've created doubt. Yes. And doubt is deadly yes. when it comes to the very essence of this particular type of policy. This is kind of kryptonite. Or, you know, was it Cass Sunstein? You know, nudge, this idea of nudging people towards better public policy and public outcomes. Yeah, well said. Um, and just building on, on, on those observations, Rudyard, what I would say is well 
big C conservatives have generally been opposed to the carbon tax. There at different points has been a conceptual support or intellectual support for carbon tax amongst small C conservatives. And the, the argument goes like this, um, that there are essentially three ways for public policy to induce a reduction in emissions. The first is to price it. The second is to regulate it. And the third is to subsidize alternatives. And the argument has always been that amongst those three, carbon taxes are the most efficient because it essentially, it's neutral and it leaves in the hands of consumers and businesses uh, a set of choices on how to respond to the price signal. Um, and, and rather than deciding that the government knows best on what technology uh, is, is, is the way to reduce emissions or even the distribution of emissions reductions across regions or sectors or whatever. Um, and I've been open to that line of argument. Um, but what we've seen in recent years under the Trio government, I think culminating with this announcement last week, is that the role of the carbon tax in our emissions reductions is becoming smaller and smaller. So um, initially, the argument was the carbon tax was going to be the principal way by which Canada reduced emissions. I've seen estimates, Roger, that um, when you project out to 2030 in terms of our emissions reductions, the carbon tax is now playing the role of something like 20%, 25%. And after last week's announcement, that number is going to even fall more. So we essentially now have a political consensus in Ottawa between the major parties that the way we're going to do re reduce emissions is the most costly means, which is Ottawa either regulates uh, individuals or businesses or um, subsidizes electric ba battery facilities for you know every region and, and, and city in, in the country. This is massively expensive. And so I think if you do care about reducing emissions, this is a major setback because um, we've essentially removed the low, the most efficient and lowest cost way uh, to go about doing that. Yeah, and I think this matters for Western Canada, Sean, because you have a scenario now where we are going through a period of high, some would say excessive immigration. Immigration adds, obviously, to population. Population increases, increase total greenhouse gas emissions, and carbon pricing and the carbon tax was a way to share more equitably... Yes the burdens of um, population growth vis-a-vis -vis total reductions. And I think Western Canada and Western Canadians are waking up to the fact now that be careful. You get rid of the carbon tax and the wrong governments in place, you are going to be um, you know, taxed in one way or another at the source, at the emitters, at the energy producers that are at the core of your economy because they're because Canada's emissions will be going up relentlessly. As we saw this week, the Liberal government reiterated its immigration target, half a million people next year. This is a significant increase in total emissions. And again, I just wonder, you know, how does anyone square the circle vis-a-vis -vis immigration rates, vis-a-vis -vis our Paris targets? And as you say, my worry, my concern, and people in the West should be Equally, I'm sure they are focused on this. How does the ultimate burden not get paid by the energy producer? To totally. In fact, um, I, I would argue that last week wasn't the death of the carbon tax, as some have claimed. The death of the carbon tax was earlier um, this year when the government committed, recommitted to establishing a sectoral cap on emissions coming from the oil and gas sector. Because, of course, the whole argument for the carbon tax is it's supposed to apply neutrally across the economy and then how different regions or parts of the economy um, uh, lower emissions to get to our overall target 
is left to market forces. And yet the government said, well, we're going to have a carbon tax plus. We're going to have a, a, a cap on one particular sector in the economy, one that just happens to be disproportionately um, uh, uh, concentrated in our Western province. I think that was a sign that the kind of jig was up, that, that the government had, for all intents and purposes, abandoned the carbon tax as its principal means by reducing emissions. And so, yeah, I think... Um, I don't think there's any question that the net effect of all of this is that the government is going to be coming for Western Canada in a lot of ways. And um, and that is going to have the, exacerbate the kind of regional uh, uh, divisions and fissures that we've seen play out even just in the past week since the government announced this carve out for Atlantic Canada. Yeah. Well, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, let's talk about the politics of this, because there is a hint of, more than a hint, there's a waft of desperation in the air in liberal circles, arguably driving this policy reversal on what many would consider to be one of the signature hallmark, you you choose the word, um, uh, legacy pieces of this prime minister's mandate. Why are they starting to burn the furniture to keep the lights on? We'll have that for you right after this break. Thank you for listening to The Hub's podcast. Wanted to take this opportunity to let you know that you're just one click away from receiving complimentary access to The Hub's daily email newsletter. We call it Per Diem and it features some of our best analysis and insights, all built around the big issues and ideas shaping our world. Simply visit our website, www.thehub.ca. Follow the links to subscribe, and then the next morning at 7 a.m. Eastern, you'll receive per diem in your inbox. You can unsubscribe at any time, no worries. But we think you're really going to enjoy what you'll hear, see, and read via per diem, our daily subscription email. Thanks again for listening to this Hub Podcast. Now back to our program. Welcome back to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our editor at large. Sean, great to be with you here in person. Let's pick up on our conversation before the break. We're discussing the carbon tax and look at it through the lens of liberal politics. Uh, It's clear to me that this is a sign, maybe or a symptom, of acute political desperation on the part of this government. They must be seeing things in the polls, not just in Atlantic Canada, but elsewhere, that really suggests that they have played at least this prime minister's political rope out to its very end. And I just, you, you've been in a similar situation with the Harper government at the very final chapters uh, of his time as prime minister. Talk to us a little bit just about like the headspace that you get in, because I don't understand, Sean, why leaders start to eviscerate the few things that remain that they could legitimately, you know, claim as part of a a political legacy that they've spent the preceding nine, you know, eight, nine years heavily invested in. And then poof, it's gone. Yeah. You know, a prime minister or government's been around too long when their chief political commitment is to undo their previous policies that's probably a sign that you hit your best before date um there's different ways to respond to your question let me try to do so in a way that you know maybe um provides a window into what goes on in ottawa um 
I think a couple of things are happening. One, um, there, there's a tendency to have something of a bunker mentality. You know, as the as you are confronted with the the successive um, negative polls like the the government has in the past several months, there's a tendency to kind of circle the wagons around an increasingly small group around the leader. Um, there's a tendency for a kind of us versus them mentality to really take shape. And I, I think that's even a, a bigger risk uh, in the particular this uh, current context because there's such a visceral dislike of Pierre Polyev in certain liberal circles. You've seen just even in the past couple of days, ministers take kind of uh, um, gratuitous shots at him. You just get the sense that they've that they really have um, become almost kind of conspiratorial in a way uh, about themselves and the way that the media is treating them and the way that the, the opposition is being disingenuous and, you know, their own caucus is griping. It, it, it's a pretty kind of nasty brew of of uh, personal and political dynamics at play. And, and so, yeah, I think that that is rarely the conditions for good public policy, Richard. Um um, and I think we've seen that play out in the in in, in the past several weeks, uh, kind of culminating again with this ex- pretty extraordinary um, a walking away from, a, as you put it, a kind of core signature policy. I mean, I, I'll, I'll turn it to you in a second, but it's just worth emphasizing this point. This is a policy that this government has actually taken to through two reelections in 2019 and 2021. Imagine you're a liberal who lost in 2021, which is only a couple of years ago. Um, because of the politics of the carbon tax in your own riding, you think like, what the heck? You know, if we were going to just walk away from this thing, why didn't we walk away from it two years ago or three years ago or whatever? Um, and, and so, yeah, it, it starts to kind of create, you mentioned doubt in the minds of, of individual consumers. It creates kind of doubt in the minds of liberal MPs as, as well. And so, yeah, there's a whole kind of dynamic around the leader and the caucus and staff and so on. Um, that, as I said, rarely creates the conditions for a government to kind of find its way out of the doldrums that this one finds itself in now. How do you think they respond, Sean, to the criticisms that have uh, come to the fore this this week that are not just from you know, their political opponents or premiers? They're from the former environment minister, Catherine McKenna. They are from... Mark Carney, arguably someone who uh, would now seek to replace this prime minister as liberal leader. What does that do? Does that, again, cause you to entrench more, dig in more? Or does it start to lead to some inevitable conclusions that the game is up, that the string has been played out? that there really is not another move on the chessboard that somehow miraculously restores the political fortunes of this prime minister and this government. I'd say at the top, it reinforces that sense of embattlement and entrenchment that even on our own side is kind of coming after us. But I think you're right. If you're a, you know, if you're a, put yourself in the shoes of a liberal MP um, who was elected in 2015. Justin Trudeau got you there. You rode his coattails, right? You were a third-place party, and he got you into Parliament. Um, in 2019 and 2021, uh, the party was diminished, but his coattails were still um, ultimately at the kind of center of the party's success. Uh, it's no longer the case. His disapproval ratings are extraordinary. You know, we Canadian Canadians often talk about uh, the unpopularity of Donald Trump in 2016 to 2020. Justin Trudeau would love Donald Trump's approval ratings right now. Um, and so, yeah, I think that 
Mark Carney doing an interview with the Globe and Mail, um, you, one can't help but think that his audience was liberal MPs who are thinking, man, I'm not going to get reelected if this guy remains at the top of the ticket. Um, and uh, so I suspect there's increasing kind of chatter amongst MPs about, you know, we, maybe we need to talk to this guy. Maybe it's time to go because our jobs are ultimately on the line. Yeah. So what are the, I don't know, seven signs of the apocalypse when, when it comes to the, you know, the end of a government? I guess number one, maybe, sign is that they start eviscerating their own policy legacy. Number two sign of the apocalypse, their former, uh, you know, senior allies to the leader like Catherine McKenna come out and begin to openly criticize. What are some of the other things we should look for to to understand if this truly is, um, you know, a kind of bunker-like moment here where suddenly the prime minister is left with a few key loyalists and is effectively alone, effectively abandoned, and needs to make a decision sooner rather than later um, whether he's taking everybody down with him or exiting stage left and opening up the party for a, a leadership contest. Yeah, that's a great question, Rudyard. Um, two um, come to mind. The first is we actually start to see liberal MPs distancing themselves from the government. Um, you know, this announcement um, to carve out or create an exemption for uh, home heating actually st started when uh, a liberal member of parliament from Newfoundland voted with the conservatives against the government uh, on a policy along these lines. Um, and one wonders if we'll start to see more of that. The second is subtle, but I think arguably more important, which is you start to see it in the media coverage. You know, the, the, the prime minister and the government have had the benefit of the doubt from the press gallery um, essentially since uh, 2015. I suspect my conservative friends would argue before that. But you are starting to see um, that that shift, that um, the press is becoming more combative in press conferences with the prime minister and the government, um, uh, that uh, we're seeing high-profile uh, columnists essentially calling out uh, the, the prime minister and, and the government. Um, when you lose the media, uh, you know, I don't want to overstate the importance of the media, but I think it is a useful um, guidepost uh, to a, a government that at that stage it becomes virtually impossible to kind of recover, uh, which is something we've been talking about on this podcast for some time. Uh, um, the government would have been in trouble independent of its own, in its own um, failures, uh, external events sort of outside its control. There is something of a kind of natural expiry date, um, but it's not just facing that anymore. It's facing all of the kind of buildup of scandal and, and policy failure. Uh, a, an issue in the Israel-Hamas war, which drives a stake right through the heart of the liberal caucus, which we haven't even talked about, but I do think is is probably destabilizing for the prime minister and the, and the government, as we've seen in the past couple of weeks. So there's just this kind of perfect storm Um which makes one wonder if the prime minister is going to be having a walk in the snow, um, you know, sometime in the coming months. Yeah, he does have a tendency. Uh, look, it's very human, very understandable to, um, you know, heroize, valorize his father. Yeah. And, and I could see that being uh, a kind of moment where we all turn on our televisions come January or February and see the prime minister at a microphone in front of his official residence on a cold snowy day, uh, saying that, you know, he, like his father, 
um, took a walk and has now come back, you know, to announce his decision. Um, I, I tend to think, Sean, that this is now inevitable. I think uh, talking to friends in Ottawa that there was a concerted attempt after the summer to reset. Um, and that reset, you know, had some moments. Uh, the state visit by Zelensky initially, <laughs> then that blew up. Uh, election interference reared its ugly head again this time you know, in some ways more explosively with India and this idea of an assassination um, of a diaspora uh, political member of the Khalistani movement in Canada, stopping the reset. And now I think this war, uh, it's this tragic, horrible uh, war that Israel is forced to uh, perpetrate for reasons of its own national survival against the terrorist group Hamas, takes all the oxygen out of the room and it seems kind of strange and often I think it can be sound a bit tone deaf to start talking about I don't know HST rebates on diapers or whatever kind of small beer type policies governments roll out when they're in the throes of you know a political kind of death knell yes yeah yeah I think that's I think that's precisely right I you know it's hard to prepare for a forthcoming budget uh, when, you know, basic kind of kitchen table items uh, issues have been superseded in a way by what we're all seeing play out in the Middle East. And just on that point, Sean, I, I would not underestimate talking to members of the Jewish community, the extent to which this prime minister has a big problem with um, many Jewish Canadian voters who feel that uh, his equivocation here at various points in this uh, these tragic events since uh, since the beginning of October have telegraphed um, the fact that this party is conflicted about it, that it does not have a clear, defined theory of the case. Uh, it does not have a commitment to unilateral support for Israel and its war on Hamas. Yeah, I was, I was precisely where I was going to come. Um, um, I think that's right. I was talking to someone this week um, who said that for most of his lifetime, the Liberal Party was the kind of Jewish party of Canada. It disproportionately drew support from Canada's Jewish community. And that has eroded over time, in part because uh, I think Stephen Harper's um, strong position vis-a-vis -vis Israel, but also what's been going on within the Liberal Party. Um, it started in the early 2000s, um, I think in hindsight, with the election of Omar al-Bagra from um, Mississauga area. But at that point, who, who, who had uh, views that differed from the party's conventional position on, on the Middle East in general, and Israel in particular. Um, but at the time, he was a party of one. Um, what's happened, of course, in the ensuing 20 years or so, is he's no longer a party of one. There, we know there's at least 25 liberal members of parliament who signed this letter uh, 10 days ago or so demanding a ceasefire. And so, yeah, the liberal party has, its principal position on Israel has evolved in part because of this transformation of its caucus. And, um, and we're seeing that play out right now um, uh, in the, the government's equivocation, trying to kind of uh, dance on the head of a pin as it on one hand, responds to Jewish members of parliament like Anthony Housefeather, who's been very principled and I think ought to be elevated as a, as a, a principled voice on these issues. Um, but the fact that he has this critical mass in his in his caucus 
that um, that doesn't share those views and are hugely electorally significant because a lot of them are concentrated in and around the GTA, the types of places that the conservatives will need to win if they ultimately want to win the next election. So um, I think your instinct is right. Not only does the uh, war in the Middle East uh, in a way um, essentially impede the government's ability to start talking about domestic kind of bread and butter issues, it worse for them, it creates this kind of discord uh, within the caucus that, um, that has left the government um, impotent in a way to respond to um, what in my mind is the most significant moral test of, you know, past two decades. Yeah, and let me just end. I think, you know, conservatives in Canada can take a well-deserved victory lap here in large part thanks to Prime Minister Harper's leadership. Conservatism in Canada has gotten Israel right. Uh, it's a movement that has long understood that Israel is a beacon of uh, democracy, of pluralism. Yes, it is imperfect. All nations and countries are imperfect, and it struggles in a particularly harsh and unfriendly environment to its very ideals. They exist, Sean, you know, in my mind, kind of out beyond the barbed wire of Western civilization. They are in a very dangerous neighborhood. And conservatives have always understood that supporting Israel is supporting Western civilization. It's supporting the values that are just so dear and close to our civilization. I'll use, you know, the big word, the C word, civilization. This is what this war is about. This is what this fight is over. Um, barbarism versus civilization. And I think for many members of the Jewish community, there is a renewed appreciation that there is one party in Canada, the Conservative Party of Canada, that is unequivocal on these issues and hasn't just become unequivocal, unequivocal in the last you know couple weeks, has been unequivocal on this for a decade or more. Yeah, well said. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think that's right. Uh, uh, I don't have. A, I can't say anything better than that, Roger. I think. I think. I think that's precisely right. And maybe what I would say is, um, I took the the up the UP Express uh, to to your house today in Toronto. As you said, I'm so glad to be here with you. And while I was uh, riding the train, I watched a, a speech from the Vice Chancellor of Germany um, that I'd encourage uh, listeners to check out. You can find it on on social media uh, in various forums. And this was an expression of moral clarity in a moment of moral test. And, um, you know, I would say to the prime minister, if you're indeed going here, out. Here. Yeah. Sunak's, Sunak's given that speech. Biden's given that speech. Now you're saying the chancellor of Germany has given that speech. Our prime minister has not given that yeah. speech yet. If, if this is the end of your time as prime minister, what better way to go out than with moral clarity in this moment of moral test? Um, I think that would be good for his party ultimately. Um, but it would certainly be good for the country. Uh, and uh, I hope maybe he's listening. I somehow doubt it. <laughs> Sean, great to, uh, great to do this in person. Uh, we look forward to your interview with George F. Will appearing in The Hub uh, next week and on our podcast feed. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in and listening to this edition of The Roundtable on the 3rd of November, 2023. Thank you for listening to The Friday Roundtable edition of the Hub Dialogues. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director 
of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's editor-in-chief. This program is produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to The Hub's podcast feed on virtually any audio platform. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. That's The Hub Dialogues, and it's waiting for you right now on your favorite podcast platform. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Hub Roundtable. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Granovsky Gluskin Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening.